0: A DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while in motion with Stitcher. It's a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher right now, you have a chance to win some free money downloading is quick and easy it takes just a few seconds you just go to stitcher.com or you can find it in the app store you download it and then when you register in the promo code box enter other people when you do that you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks it's that simple the latest episode of other people will then be waiting for you in your favorites and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content always available on demand without syncing that's the stitcher app Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or do it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer, whatever you got. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you sign up. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common
1: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
2: i think it's really beautiful jesus did what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there
0: and now here's your host Brad Listing,
2: just one person at just one time.
1: All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two overly cerebral human beings in conversation. This is you sitting there slack-jawed. Thank you for being here, and welcome to this, the 100th episode of this program. 100 episodes, ladies and gentlemen. Hard for me to believe. Probably hard for you to believe. We've made it. Two a week, 50 weeks, no breaks, no weeks off. I don't care. I'm a creature of habit. I'm not complaining. I like doing the program. Almost a full year now, sitting in front of this microphone, trying to think of something to say. And uh, of course, with that in mind, I have a lot of people to thank. Uh, First and foremost, I owe a great thanks to you, everybody who's listening. I know I've said this before on many different occasions, but I really appreciate the kind support that you've given me over the past year, the kind emails, uh, the messages of of all kinds. Uh, I can't do this without you, obviously. It would be no fun, for one thing, if there was nobody listening. Not to mention, it would be monumentally sad. So, thank you for sticking with me and for spreading the word. And I look forward to seeing what happens in year two. Uh, I also owe great thanks to all of the authors who have been kind enough to talk with me over the past year. Uh, The show obviously wouldn't exist without them, without their willing participation. So, a big, uh, big salute and a kind thank you to all of my esteemed guests. And finally... I want to publicly thank my lovely wife and my daughter who have put up with me doing this uh, for a year now. They don't get enough credit. They've made space for me in our home. Uh, They've kept it quiet when I've needed it to be quiet so I can record and so on and so forth. It's not always easy, uh, nor is it always convenient, but they've helped me out whenever I've needed help, and I appreciate that, and I love them. So, yeah, I just got back uh, moments ago from a walk. Uh, This is what I do sometimes before. I sit down to do one of these shows. I'll go for a walk. I'll try to gather my thoughts, try to think of something to talk about. And today, I was walking around and I was thinking to myself, what can I say about this show and about why I'm doing this show that I haven't already said? That's what I was trying to figure out today. And you know, one thing that occurred to me, and I think I, I might have alluded to this before, either in a monologue on this program or in an an interview of some kind. But one thing that this medium, this podcast medium, this radio medium, whatever you want to call it, uh, one thing that it has in common with fiction and with good writing in general, I think, is that it shares a unique ability to bridge the divide between people at the level of consciousness. Uh, That's how it feels for me anyway, uh, because, you know, I came to this uh, as a writer, uh, first and foremost, and as a reader of books, obviously. But also as a huge fan uh, of radio and a big podcast nerd. So people like Howard Stern and Terry Gross and Mark Marin and Ira Glass and so on down the line, all of these people who, uh, who I'm listening to on a regular basis, uh, you know, they are doing this for me, and I owe them all a great debt. It's a great comfort for me to hear their stuff. Uh, I find it to be a huge relief. And I guess what I'm saying is that I'm hoping that in doing this show, I can provide a little of that here myself. And that, uh, you know, when this podcast is at its best, it's making people feel less alone in the world and more connected to other people. Okay? Okay. So, quick reminder, please remember to subscribe to the show over at iTunes if you haven't done that yet. It's free. And uh, if you like the program, if you're a fan, please take a moment to rate it and review it. That really does help the cause. My guest today is George Saunders. He almost doesn't need an introduction. Uh, Most of you know him and have read his work in magazines like Harper's or in McSweeney's, uh, in GQ, in The New Yorker. I'm thrilled to have him here on the program. He's the best-selling author of books like Civil Warland and Bad Decline, The Very Persistent, Gappers of Fripp, In Persuasion Nation, and The Braindead Megaphone, among others. So, let's go ahead with it. Episode 100, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with the great George Saunders.
2: My dad was in the Air Force, and so he uh, met my mom in Texas, and then uh, when I, think I was about one, I was born in Texas, and then when I was one, we moved up to, to uh, Gage Park in Chicago and lived there about six years, and then moved out to the, the South Side of Chicago Forest, so pretty much a Chicago kind of childhood.
1: Okay, and so was your dad in the military when you were in Chicago?
2: No, no. He just was in for just you know the, whatever the standard thing was a couple of years, and then uh, when we moved back, he did a bunch of stuff. He was a um, he was a loan collection agent for a while, and he worked. Uh, he sold something called flood control units, which I don't even really know what those are, but they they went in basements, I guess, of apartment buildings.
1: Like, uh, like, like sump pumps or something.
2: Uh, something like sump pump. Yeah, that's a word that I heard a lot in those days. Sump pumps. Uh, and then he started selling coal kind of, um, you know, at that time, kind of early sixties, a lot of the, um, I guess a lot of buildings in Chicago were still heated by coal. So he would kind of, uh, he would sneak into these apartments and see what kind of coal they were burning. And then he'd come out and make a recommendation to the owner. And then he kind of, over my childhood, he kind of worked up from that to being the vice president of the small, smallish coal company in Chicago. So, uh, he was always kind of, you know, we, we lived out in the South suburbs, but he was always sort of working downtown.
1: So, and what were the south suburbs like? I mean, I, and I know there's such, like, a, my sister lives in Chicago, so I have some sense of the the difference between north side and south side. Like, what was the area like that you grew up? Was it was it uh, fairly suburban, or was it pretty urban and rough, or what was it like?
2: It was kind of, it wasn't rough, no. It was kind of, uh, I was just trying to write something about this, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It wasn't, it wasn't cheaper land, you know, and it wasn't like the Brady Bunch. Uh, there were still some sort of, uh, vestigial farms around you know and uh, most of which were banned and so and I think there was like in our subdivision there was sort of four floor plans that were you know instigated around and they all had these sort of vaguely Spanish names and so at one point I was living in I think I lived in a I don't know what it was called now but a Ventura or something like that and the three of my best friends also lived in the same floor plan and like one of them had the mirror image floor plan and uh, so it was it was kind of uh, suburban, but um, I think a lot of it was also informed by the fact that most of the people had just come out from Chicago. They were kind of first-generation suburbanites, and uh, I think it probably skewed, uh, I always say working class. I'm not sure that's really the right word, but like one guy near us worked for Wrigley's in, as an accountant, and one guy was a cement contractor. Uh, so it was kind of, a, I still haven't quite been able to put my finger on exactly what kind of place it was, but... Uh, kind of, it was you know, in a way, as I get older, it looks more and more like a a town, you know, like a, almost like a Williamsburg, Ohio, but with a kind of a uh, that suburban overlay on it where you, we didn't really, uh, you kind of came to know people in the community, but there was su- such a density of population that you always felt a little bit, um, you know, that you were sort of a family unto yourself. I don't know quite how to describe it, but...
1: Well, no, it's interesting when there's that, you know, that you say that, that when there is density of population, you almost feel more isolated in some respects uh, as opposed to when there's like, you know, 50 families in a small, small town and, yeah. and everybody's, you know, all on top of one another somehow.
2: Yeah, and I think early on, you know, when I was first on the right, I would look for some kind of uh, example. And I think, you know, Weinberg, Ohio or some of Faulkner's stuff uh, or even like Kerouac's, um, what was that called, Ovan, um, Visions of Girard, where he writes about Lowell. And I always I remember trying to uh, being real frustrated trying to fit my childhood into one of those slots, you know, like the town plumber. But I thought I don't know who the town plumber was, you know, or, <laughs> or uh, there should be some story in here about a you know a quasi prostitute or uh, a fallen. Uh, I don't know that either, you know. <laughs> so when you kind of reach for those archetypes, they really weren't available, which is maybe the first lesson in whatever might have been unique about that particular
1: lifestyle, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, I think back to my childhood, and I like, there's so many people's parents, I had no idea what they did. Like, I just never thought to ask somehow. And I guess when you're a kid, right. it's, it's not as important. but Right. Um, so was it, you know, were you... And you know, also, the other
2: factor, this is you never... Oh, sorry. I think we got a little delay here. But I ne- you never saw them at work either. Everybody went somewhere else. Like, I suppose in you know, Winesburg, Ohio, you walk down and there's the butcher and you, you know him and he's got a family. But there, the, the actual work always sort of took place off stage and was sort of theoretical.
1: Right. And so, what, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you, uh, you know, bookish and, and writerly from the beginning or, or were you running around playing sports? Like, what was happening when you were, uh, you know, a, a young kid?
2: Uh, I think I was a pretty much an athletic kid. I, 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 I mean, I know I thought of myself that way. I don't think I, I was all that athletic. But I, my, you know, if you'd ask me, I was. I wanted to be a pro baseball player and, or combination baseball football player, depending on the seasons and all that kind of thing. Um, I was a pretty fast reader, I guess, and I read. I wasn't. I wasn't one of these kids who has read everything inside and wants to be a writer at all. But when, every so often, I'd have a kind of a peak experience of reading. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when I look back at my, you know, my thought patterns were very odd, I think. I'm just realizing that, that like, I had a high level of nostalgia. And whatever that thing is where you kind of look around at a human community and try to sort of, um, I don't know, I guess it's story tell, But, you know, you're trying to figure out who's who and what they think and why they're above this person and um, that that what I now think was a kind of a novelizing tendency. I think I had that from a pretty young age, and it took me a long time to figure out that not everybody necessarily thought that way. Um, but that's kind of a dreamy. I mean, I used to do, spend a lot of time just kind of wandering around the neighborhood and speculating, and I don't know what the hell. You know, nothing very useful, but pretty good. Actually, a really idyllic, happy. Uh, childhood,
1: for sure, and do you know uh like which of your parents you might get the storytelling gene from like can you trace it
2: I think both really i mean my my dad was a really, really wonderful kind of raconteur, and he would uh you know whenever he'd come into a party or something, he would just kind of light up the room he'd always have some really funny uh often kind of dark trending story and uh it was a kind of real generous storytelling presence. but my mom also had a very a little bit quieter and i think she tended to she was a great foil to him for one thing but also she would like with us one-on-one uh she'd come from amarillo texas so she would tell us a lot of stories about that side of the family that were a little a little quieter maybe they weren't so much for public consumption but very sweet and kind of uh, i remember one story she told me that was so weirdly big for me was that when she was a kid they were they were really poor they lived in a there's like five or six of them in a little one room trailer with no running water and during the depression and somehow her dad was working three or four jobs at the time they they managed to put aside just a little bit of money so the kids could have sort of a you know nominal christmas and the kids somehow got wind of it and went uh woke up early and opened their presents before the parents got up and that was this, that was told to us as this is huge heartbreak for her parents that they had you know so there's so something about that that was um that story and that she chose to tell it to us was was sort of deep and i remember being really sad about that for about a week after she told me, Even though it had happened in like 1940 or something but so i think both and my mom's side also had a really she had some a couple of brothers who were just a little riot funny they were living in chicago at that time funny and kind of uh almost like I think being sort of pre-Steve Martin Steve Martin's like they were kind of uh, they were really good at assuming certain characters and doing voices and kind of sustaining these like character impersonations for whole days and stuff and it was it sounds kind of silly but at the time you, you know they'd come over and you just thought like oh this is going to be a great day <laughs> Jim is here Mike is here it's going to be a riot
1: so they wait they would stay in character for the whole day
2: or you know on and off like, I remember my uncle Mike would do this kind of uh, exaggeratedly dumb persona he would be he, like he didn't he couldn't pick up on whatever you were saying, and he would do it you know for as long as we were interested, which is often you know evenings and uh then you just never knew he and he never they 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 rarely showed up without some kind of what felt to me like comic energy they come in tell a story about something that just happened or and of course they were they were young I mean they were probably in their early twenties and uh so there was something i don't you know there's something encoded about that about the uh, but, you know, just about the power of language I guess because a lot of the jokes were language based they weren't just goofing they were kind of like imitating somebody or or, or a little bit in the Jonathan Winters mode they weren't really imitating as much as they were kind of riffing on an archetype or something And uh, so for me I think to see the way that that affected me and everybody around me it just made the day non-tragic you know when you guys would come in and it was just kind of a an act of generosity. I think that, that and a bunch of other stuff taught me that, you know, language really is powerful. It's a, it's a a mood changer. It can be like a, a way of taking whatever's existent and altering it just by, um, sort of spinning your perception of it a little bit or something like that.
1: Well, yeah. And and it's also, uh, like the, whenever I I remember being a kid and whenever adults would, uh, include you in the joke, you know, like kind of let you in on it. Like I always found that, very exciting, you know, because so often it was like, you know, this isn't for yeah, a child's maybe. ears or whatever. And whenever you were around an, an adult who didn't play by those rules and who treated you, um, if not necessarily like an equal, uh, then close to it. Like I always found that great, you know, and I always really appreciated those people and, I, you know, paid, yeah, I appreciate- paid careful attention during those times, you know? I mean,
2: in a way that's, that's how you, how you, how you grow a kid up is to say, well, actually you're capable of participation. Here's a moment when you're allowed to do it. So definitely...
1: Right. And so then, uh, you know, you wound up at the Colorado School of Mines uh, from the south side of Chicago and you have a degree in geophysical engineering. And I know you, you've probably been asked about this a lot of times, but I have to join the chorus and ask because it's such an uh, unusual background for uh, a writer of literary fiction to have. And I also, uh, you know, I went, I went, I went to uh, undergrad just down the road at Boulder. So I'm familiar with the School of Mines. Oh, yeah. and Just curious as to how you wound up there. And then, how you wound up writing out of that particular education?
2: Sure. Well, I had, uh, I, I was in school, high school, not doing, not really caring that much. And I actually, just the other day, I found an old report card and I was mortified to find out that I had flunked junior English, which is like mythology. I flunked it, which takes some effort. Uh, but then I, I met these two teachers and, and, um, they're married now, but they weren't at the time. They were just young, young kids, really. But they sort of separately took an interest in me and, um, so I, I don't know how much of it was planned, but they just kind of, they gave me um, Ayn Rand to read, which i never read I hadn't read a novel really ever. And um, then it just kind of encouraged me to think about going to college, which I hadn't really planned on doing. I had a, a backup plan of being in this band, that, uh, for the band that supposedly they were going to open for the band that opened for the band that opened for the Eagles the following fall. So I thought that was a pretty <laughs> solid career plan. Um <laughs> These guys just really, they, these, this uh, couple that are now the Limblooms, they just really helped me um, think of myself as some of them might be college material. And then he actually called, uh, he was a geologist, and I just, you know, admired him so much. And uh, so he said, well, maybe, you know, if you don't have anything else, maybe you want to study geology. And um, so he called the School of Mines, which is a pretty hard, to, uh, hard place to get into, and at that point, I I think I had I'd flown to two or three classes, and you know it just wasn't a good bet. But my my um, ACTs were good, so he made a pitch, and they said, well, you know, the fact that you're calling means something to us. So if he if he goes to summer school and takes something like eighteen hours uh, in hard sciences and maintains such and such a great point, we'll let him in. So I did that, uh, just really out of out of love for this guy, really and loyalty. And he was sort of communicating to me that this was a critical thing if I didn't. Kind of get myself out of the ditch. It might, it might be, uh, you know, kind of the end of something in me. So I did it, and then I, I went out to the school mines, showed up at the admissions office, and said, "I'm here to enroll." And they said, "Well, we don't have any record of you." And I sort of reminded them of the situation, and I could see the woman like, "Hmm, oh wow." Uh, and so she took my transcripts into another room, and I realized I hadn't actually been accepted. I had all my stuff with me, and you know I'd been bragging about it for months. But <laughs> she came out and said, "Okay, you're you're in." And so it was kind of like, um, you know, writing at that point. I didn't I didn't write much. I didn't read. I read some, and I I think if I had had any sense, I would have noticed that I really came alive when I was reading or writing. But I was such a lunkhead that, that you know I didn't make the correlation between, you know, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled and happy when I do thing A therefore i might want to do thing a for a living it it didn't it wasn't computing so um uh, yeah so then i just and then once i got into this school and was working at it i i just had this kind of obsessive quality that i'm not going to quit i'm going to get through it so four and a half years later i had this degree in geophysical engineering
1: okay and so what and, and so were those years when you were at the school of mines were you pretty studious i mean it you said you were pretty uh you know, committed cool. to getting the degree, but did it requ- I mean, did it require a lot of you or were you, were you, uh, dicking around at all and, and yeah. doing normal college kid stuff or were you?
2: No, I was, I was whatever the opposite of dicking around is. That's what I was doing. I just was working, working, working weekends and late nights and still, even so, I mean, I was working harder than I ever worked and I still, you know, I think I graduated with a, like a two five or something. So it was really, I was at the, you know, the very end of, or the sort of bound of my, uh, my capabilities so I, I worked really hard and um just didn't i didn't drink at all during i never drank i didn't drink all through high school uh this neighbor had made a bet with me at one point he he said something that, there's a lot of drinking in the neighborhood and i said ah oh, this is you guys are disgusting you drink too much and he said no oh, don't worry you'll be joining us here in a couple of years i said no i definitely won't so this guy bet me five hundred dollars that i would drink before i turned 18 and which, which had the effect of keeping me totally straight all through high school and um so when I turned 18, he handed me $500 cash, and by that time I was kind of, you know, I kind of had that the deep pleasure of being the only sober one at a party, you know. <laughs> and and if, if you're kind of a control freak, which I am, that was very pleasant. Pleasant to find out that you could, you know, your IQ could instantly go up just by not drinking. And so I didn't drink all through college and didn't do anything, you know, anything naughty or off color or anything all through college. And um, so yeah, I can't remember where that was leading, but
1: no, I mean, and then... Yeah, anyway, I mean, all studied, I studied.
0: Well, yeah, and you mentioned, yeah. you
1: mentioned earlier, like this is something else that I wanted to ask you about, is that you mentioned Ayn Rand, and uh, a lot of young men, like I feel like, read Atlas Shrugged or, um, you know, uh, her material when they're in their, their adolescence or whatever, and then, I, you know, you wound up going on to the School of Mines to study engineering. I'm curious as to how much of an impact um, that, you know, her books had on your decision to do that and how much it really influenced you and... Um, you know obviously you're not uh, under her sway anymore but uh, I'm just curious as to how you process that.
2: (laughs) It was huge you know it was like um, uh, well you know as you say a lot of young guys and I I would for me it was it had to do partly with realizing a little too late that I had kind of wasted those four years of high school and didn't really have much to offer the world I I mean I felt like I was something special but I hadn't done anything at all I hadn't been outstanding in sports or you know even I, I played music but I hadn't done much with that really and so somehow that philosophy of hers was really flattering to me. You know, the idea that, uh, you know, it's, uh, you can read it this way. I'm not sure this is what she was saying, but you can read it that, you know, you, the holder of this book, are part of this special fraternity uh, by virtue of reading this book and having these attitudes. You don't have to worry about all those boring normal things. You know, like like sympathy or friendliness or whatever, so I, I that absolutely had a great effect on me because it, it made me want to be good, it made me want to achieve something and I uh, I think at that time I attributed a lot, being, being from where I was from, uh, I, I attributed a lot to any kind of technical skills, like working on cars was good, you know, um, knowing how things worked was good and so then to go, and, and that wasn't at all natural, so for whatever side of the brain that is. I don't have it, so to go into that situation at the school of mine and you know, really learn how to do things. Like we had a, you know, mineral identification class and a soils class and we did uh, some rock climbing and we had, uh, you know, all kinds of hard physical sciences and it made me feel really competent and it made me feel like Ayn Rand would like me if she could meet me because I was so so <laughs> technical. But then um, I kind of wore off, you know, but I, was, and I, but I was reading that. I was reading um, Khalil Gibran, which seems like an unlikely partner except they're both kind of high romantic in a certain way, you know, um so I had a really strange bag of literary things going on at that time um but like I said the main thing was I th- i think I just was terrified of failing out of that school because I realized now that I was not I was far behind in everything so I thought if I can just get one thing to kind of you know build the rest of my life on like this college degree then I could I could go ahead but I would say probably two about three years of, uh, three years out of the four and a half of mine i was really you know my go-to book was Atlas Shrugged and I would that was sort of my my moral touchstone. You know, what do I believe? Well, I believe that selfishness is actually a virtue, and all that kind of stuff. So,
1: so and then and then uh, what happened? But then I
2: I went to Asia. So I, so after the school of mines, there was a it was the middle of this oil boom, and um, so even somebody with a two four could get a, a job. So I, I went to work in Sumatra in the oil fields there, and uh, and that was really a big turning point because um, all of this Randian Kant that I had in my mind you know, met reality. And the reality was there was a bunch of us Americans over there running riot. And a lot of the, you know, the local people were just getting kind of shat upon. And, um, and for me, it kind of, and also I think too, you know, at that time, my family was struggling a little bit. There was, we had lost a business. My dad had a restaurant and lost it in the fire. And so suddenly there was this kind of reconfiguration of my understanding of, uh, I guess, economics, you know, and, I, uh, and it, kind, it kind of came to a boil. This one night I was walking in Singapore. There was a street called Orchard Road, which is kind of the affluent, um, uh, you know, foreigner place. And I was, you know, had $500 in my little pocket there and it was kind of a little wasted and was, you know, walking back to my my house. And um, down in the, there was a big excavation for one of these big high-rises. And down in the excavation, I looked and there was something skittering around, like moving and I waited a second, and it was about three or 400 women, uh, older, like mm-hmm. Malay and Chinese women, who were doing this manual labor of clearing the site of rubble. So I think they just released them out there at 11 o'clock at night, and their evening's work was to pick up rocks, you know, and, sh- and they were like, like really old, 70-year-old women doing this. And so, you, you know, so a number of things like that where you'd say, okay, so selfishness is good, and I... and. The wheels of industry are what allow virtue, and, and then you, but then you'd sort of see the the chinks in the armor a little bit. So over the over the course of that Asia thing, my like politics shifted somewhat, and then that process kind of got completed over the next six or seven years.
1: Well, yeah, I read uh, something that you said, possibly in an interview, where you talked about the work that you did. Uh, you know, as an engineer and how it allowed you to confront the everyday struggle between capitalism and grace, which I thought was sort of a lovely way of putting it.
2: Yeah, and that that was, you know, part of that. That continued because then years later, um, after I kind of had this beating period, I ended up going back to engineering when we had our kids and kind of quasi-engineering. I was more of a tech writer, and that was another little lesson where, you know, you, as as a, then a, a cog in the wheel, you know, you start to see the way that um, – you know spending twelve hours doing work that really didn't mean much to you in sort of a shitty physical environment, even at twenty eight years old it wears you down and you go home and there's your wife and kids and you you know you realize oh wow i didn't I had a lot more to bring to them at nine o'clock this morning a lot more generosity, a lot more humor, a lot more just physical strength uh so yeah, so that was something that really that was sort of the the um maybe the the final straw in this whole kind of political education was to be. You know, to go from being kind of being the oppressor to being the oppressed to to, to some extent at the end of the arc, and uh, and just sort of do the math and go, oh yeah, Marxism, I get it. You know, or, I, I kind of understand world revolution. Oh, all right. You know.
1: Well, and you mentioned a a Beatnik period just to make sure that I trace your biography. Um, you know, and follow the through line. Like you went over overseas and were working in Sumatra in the oil fields, and then after that period, did you go off and do something? Uh, unrelated.
2: Yeah, what happened was I was over there and reading reading a lot of Kerouac, and kind of you know we we would uh, work four weeks on and two weeks off. So basically, the thing was to load your backpack up with books when you went to Singapore on leave, and then that would have to get you through the four weeks on the cruise. So I would just uh, really start reading like crazy, r- kind of veering all over the place. But but encountered Kerouac and had been also listened to Springsteen, which I i never listened to him before for some reason. So I got this kind of real homesick. Americana thing. Uh and then in the middle of that I I at one point was um swimming in a river up there. We there was a place we'd go to drink. It was drinking by then. And uh there was this big river and one night drinking I thought, you know what I should do? I should swim in a Sumatran River naked, uh ah. so <laughs> jumped in and was swimming you know uh and then I looked up and there was this pipeline that, that ran all along the river, it was an oil pipeline. And sitting on the pipeline were like probably a hundred monkeys just all shitting into the water, like almost like, you know, like choreographed. And I remember thinking, oh, I wonder if this is okay, you know? And so it wasn't. And I got really sick within a few days, uh, just deathly ill. And that kind of followed me around for the next, I think that was maybe a year or so into this thing. And so the, that whole remaining six months, I just was, I uh, you know, I, I had to sleep uh, 14 or 15 hours a day, or I'd wake up feeling exactly like you do when you're hungover. And I, Suddenly, was really tired. You know, all the time it was like it was really like a foreshadowing of being eighty or something, and I was only maybe twenty-five. Um, so between that and and these Kerouacian ideas, I just I said, you know what? I'm a sellout. I'm a corporate sellout. This isn't how am I going to get any writing material from this? You know, even though I was like twenty-four and I basically had the whole world at my disposal. You know, and could go and, and go anywhere. So I quit and came home and I quickly blew through my money and kind of just started. uh You know, basically, I guess, just trying to be Kerouac or somebody like that, just hitchhiking around and working, um, you know, whatever job skewed in the direction of kind of literary as opposed to intelligent. And um, so that went on for probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years or something. And then I, uh, maybe longer, I can't. But then anyway, I got into the Syracuse program in 86-ish, somewhere around there. And that was a big, you know, I mean, a million things happened along the way, but that's the basic trajectory
1: so what what when when did the idea of becoming a writer dawn on you like what was it that caused that uh, ambition to bloom?
2: It was kind of you know when I remember being in college and reading in Rand and thinking, oh yeah, should that's what I should do but again, sort of not not having the self possession to turn to my own tendencies and go, "I welcome you you know yeah so I kind of just i took i remember I kept notebooks in college and then um when I was in Asia, by that time, I think it was it was kind of a thing because I do remember going back over to this, we had an office in a bunkhouse in, in Sumatra, and I would go over at night to the bunkhouse where we had one of those big old, you know, old-fashioned typewriters, and I had some stories that I was working on then, so it's, at that point, somehow the idea of it had at least solidified to the point where I was trying, you know, I, had, I wasn't reading much, unfortunately, but I was writing a lot. Uh, or wasn't reading the right things or anything new, I suppose. So really, it was kind of a gradual thing. I think I, even if you'd asked me in high school, you probably could have caught me on a day when I said I want to write a book someday. But it never really, um it really never came to the f- to the front of my mind until I quit the Asia job. And I thought, wow. So what is it that you, you know, apart from working for a living, which I tried and didn't like it? What what is it that I really? What's the long game here? And. uh somewhere along the line at some moment of honesty i thought yeah i really want to try to i want to try to do that you know so that that was probably somewhere during that age the end of the asian asian years i think and so you got but not any one moment
1: and, and so you got into syracuse
2: yeah i was i was at this really wild party in amarillo i was working with the groundsman and uh, there was just and somebody had a people magazine on an end table and i looked at it and inside it was a an article about Carver and McInerney and and this thing that was happening in Syracuse and I didn't even at that point I didn't even know that an NFA program or a creative writing program existed so I thought oh that's kind of cool and so I uh, you know at that time it was there was, it was totally pre-internet so I wrote a letter to Syracuse and Iowa and Houston and applied to those three places and got into Houston and Syracuse I think if I remember.
1: And then what did that? And then what did that do? I mean, was that uh, obviously? Because uh, like, my experience, and you can tell me if yours was similar, uh, was that it's just a great place to be able to hide out and actually focus on the work and not have to think about too much else? I mean, did you make uh, you know progress by leaps and bounds during that time? Was it like really uh, pivotal for you in terms of your like you know your, your progress? It was around-
2: really pivotal. Yeah, but in a kind of a weird way, like I uh what you said is just right. That it was a huge thing for me, but I actually had written I'd written a story before I got or I think one of the stories I applied with, I'd had it published already in the Northwest Review. And it was kind of, you know, with 2020 hindsight, it was very much like the stories in that in my first book in Civil Warland. But it was a pretty weird and I couldn't sustain it. I didn't I didn't really like it. I didn't quite know where it was coming from. So the actual grad school experience was me kind of regressing into a kind of a uh, Hemingway realist mode, I, which I loved, you know, but I couldn't do it very well. So I was writing, I think, a lot of stories about that Asia time in a real realist mode, kind of tragic realist mode. Um, and it really, I felt a little bit like I, I had lost my mojo a little bit. I, I didn't really whatever had got me into the program I had receded when I was while I was there. So that was kind of the the story of the next maybe I hate to say it, but maybe six or seven years where I just. You know, I was getting, in some ways, arguably more technically proficient, but also more boring, like nobody was taking the stories. I'd published three before I came to grad school, Uh, and I kind of knew why. It it was something very methodical and kind of conceptual about them, Um, almost as if, you know, my understanding of mastery meant you had to kind of figure out a system and just crank them out in that system, and that really wasn't where my uh, whatever abilities I had... you know, that, that didn't serve my talent. So it was kind of a, during and then after grad school, kind of a long fallow period where I was writing a lot, but nothing was getting any interest from anybody.
1: Well, and was this like, was this the stories that you were writing during this fallow period, um, you were continuing to sort of uh, engage in the battle between wanting to be a realist and trying to write, uh, you know, those kinds of stories and then, and then fighting against maybe the uh, more absurdist tendencies that, um, you know, you, that wound up showing up in later work? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Were you trying to reconcile that at that point? Like what, at what point did you yeah. feel like you broke through? No, just... you know
2: what? Yeah, it's a very perceptive question because I didn't, but the, but the sad thing is I, I wasn't, I wouldn't even say I was fighting. I had sort of just decided that, uh, anything funny or of the moment or anything, but sort of classic was not going to happen. And I just pushed it aside. So for all those years, I was, I was kind of frankly running around this cage I'd made for myself, which was, you know, I can't. I, I, I joke about it a lot, and I and I always use the phrase Hemingway boner, which gets a laugh. But it's kind of, I mean, in, in fact, it's more like I just I had an idea that you know that Hemingway was the greatest writer, and I and I had a real visceral response when I read his work. So I just decided that I would just internalize it, and so that meant you're doing that uncomfortable young writer thing of taking everything that's happened to you and trying to fit it into that box, even though it's not a natural fit. Uh, so that was manifesting in my own unhappiness with what I was doing also with the, you know, the kind of shittiness of the work itself but I couldn't quite figure it out and finally I think what happened, I just got tired, you know, we had, by this time we had two daughters and I was starting to see the ship leaving, you know, like if if, um, if I didn't get something going pretty soon I, I was not going to be able to keep writing with good conscience because we were going to need to have a better life and which meant more work, you know, more actual, I was working as an engineer and I was going to have to really focus so Somehow in that, uh, well, in that period I wrote this big old yucky book called uh, called La Boda de Eduardo, which is like Ed's wedding. I think you know, and I'd been on this trip to Mexico to to, go to a friend's wedding, and so I wrote this big Joycean mess of, of a book, and you uh, know, that I, re- I spent probably a year year and a half on that, and showed it to my wife and she was just like, Oh yeah, yeah, this is not you know, I mean, she couldn't even pretend to like it. <laughs> and so that was like the last kind of another last bow I just went, Oh fuck, what am I doing? There's something wrong. And um literally over a week I I um had this series of experiences that kind of just threw open the door to those absurdist comic elements again. And so one thing was I was in at my job and I had written this little um you know, uh, I'd written some poems to kind of, almost like kids' book kind of poems, silly, real, real crazy, and those my wife actually responded to. And I had a feeling of while I was working on those, real, like, wow, I don't even know what I'm doing, but this is fun, and I kind of know how to do this, you know. And uh, and then another thing was a friend of mine came to town and kind of said, you know, the best story you ever wrote, and he named one that I'd written, that one that Northwest Review story from years ago. And that was kind of painful. But then I somehow those things all worked together, and I just gave myself permission to, you know, kind of do what came naturally a little bit and drop that, um, that overbearing sort of inferior conceptual side that I that was keeping me in that sort of Hemingway box. But it was, it really was just like a desperation thing where you're like, fuck, this, you know, I'm getting older, nothing's working, what else do I got, you know? And, and, uh, so that was an incredibly euphoric thing to realize. It was just like, kind of dropping all those things that had been a handicap and say, all right, let's just have some fun here. You know, that's when that first book really started.
1: And and it was written at work.
2: Yes. 95%.
1: <laughs> that's wonderful. I love that.
2: <laughs> you're sitting in it, you're <laughs> yeah, sitting in your office. Yeah. And well, the, we had, at that time, I think my office mate and I had one computer between us and it was set up kind of near the window. So, if somebody came in, it took them. It took them sort of a, an elaborate act of will to get to where they could look at the screen, which which would give you enough time to kind of. At that, in those days, it was Shift F three. You Shift F three, and you have another document up, so you could do it, you know. And um, and actually, you know, the real benefit of it was there was never a time when you could relax and write. You, you always had to kind of sit down with something in mind or maybe it was just you know alright I've got 15 minutes this is all I'm going to get today I'm stealing it but I'll get my 15 minutes and it made me really um, sit up and, and get something done instead of the grad school energy which was a little bit indulgent and kind of like well let's just go research something about Scandinavian circuses you know <laughs> and suddenly it was like no you, you don't have time for that you gotta, you gotta get your 10 or 15 lines today which for me has kind of a I don't know. I, I think it maybe has to do with being a you know, kind of a uh, I don't know whatever whatever I was as a kid. It responds well to um, being allowed to be an entertainer and to some kind of pragmatism and some kind of deadline and some kind of money at the end. And you know, so so this is a pretty ideal environment actually.
1: So and then what about your your work as an engineer and your and your background educationally speaking? Like, do you find and can you um, detect ways in which? You know, whatever you learned at the School of Minds and whatever you learned in your professional life uh, preceding your, you know, your your literary career, um, could you detect ways in which that informed your work? Um, you know, beyond like thematic, I'm talking about like the actual approach yeah. to it and the way that you maybe structure stories or the way you have an understanding yeah. of how your stories are built. Like, did any of that factor in?
2: Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I'll be thinking about that one for a couple of weeks now. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, I think it's, a, I mean, I think, what, you know, what I've noticed, and this is not, I'm not sure if this is a plus or a minus, but, but when I talk to other writers of my generation, um, they tend to come from a place which I think would be desirable. And over words when they were in college, they were reading novels. They were reading a lot of novels, and they were reading, writing about novels, and they, they understand their position in the lineage. Um, they were sort of at the, you know, as the generation breaks, they were at the top of the wave. Uh, so in some ways, the, the way forward, I think, for them is pretty natural. Well, well I came at it from a different angle, so uh, sometimes I'm really happy about that. Things that I would just do naturally seem odd, but other times there are things that I should do naturally that I can't quite understand how to do. So it's been a bit of a mixed mixed blessing. But, for example, I remember talking to David Wallace about um, you know this kind of idea that people like us are always talking about, which is, you know, feeling in stories or or moral imperative, or um, to what extent should fiction be about how we live and that kind of stuff. And it occurred to me that for him, you know, as 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 sort of a, a well placed intellectual of his generation and a brilliant one, he sort of understood what Coover and Barth and Bartholomew meant, and he understood what the previous generation meant. And and so his natural tendencies could take him in exactly the right direction. But then. When he got to this point where we're talking about the human element, he had to sort of reboot. And he had, and I think that's what he was working on the last few years of his life. To what extent do I want you uh, emotionally engaged? How am I going to make you emotionally engaged? How am I going to square that emotional engagement with my intellectual concerns and my, my true gifts, which are kind of gifts of, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, ser- you know, whereas I was coming it from a different much more kind of corny sentimental angle which was The Grapes of Wrath is the greatest book ever written because I cried during it you know that that kind of thing (laughs) so for me it was never it was always assumed that that, you know that you were that's the level you're working at and I kind of missed the whole boat of this of the 70s like the postmoderns I I had to go back and really make up for lost time and then when I ended up writing my first book what I noticed was by that time I had some acquaintance with Barthamee and Barthes guys and uh And I thought, "Oh, okay, so my mission is still an emotional uh mission, but in order to to get the proper emotion from a consideration of the contemporary world, you might have to do some weird shit, you know, in other words, to just approach the contemporary world a la Steinbeck or a la Henningly, I already tried that, and i and i wasn 't getting the right ripple, you know based on what I knew of being alive in America right now, so then I turned back to some of those other writers. So in a sense, we were coming at the same place, but with different preparation, I guess. And so I've both been happy for that preparation and also really regretted that I didn't have a more traditional grounding in literature because I think a lot of things that are coming very hard to me would have come easier probably.
1: Yeah, no. I always feel reply, guilty. I, I always you know? feel yeah. I always feel guilty about all the books I haven't read yet. You know, it's it's a constant source. I don't know if it's a. Ugh. It's probably an outgrowth of my Catholic upbringing and just like a tendency to feel guilty anyway. But when I think about uh, all the yeah. books, like just going into a bookstore, I'll start to feel guilty. <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, it's sure.
2: No. I, I even before I go in, I feel guilty. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but I think you know. But, but one of the one of the great things about being I, I would say there's a great thing about being underread, But you what you get is you know like I'm 53, uh, I just read Sontag for the first time. You know, ha, ah, that's pretty cool. You know, or uh, you know I've never really read Jane Austen. Well, that's for this year. You know, so in a way it's kind of cool. It's a it's a way of prolonging that adolescent thrill. You know of uh, you know that when you're young and you you found a book and you lock yourself in your room and you totally you have your world. Uh, changed by that can still that's still happening to me because there are these great writers I just haven't
1: gotten to yet so well so okay so how do you work you know because obviously you're teaching and you're reading students work and you're offering critiques and then you're writing your own stuff and then you're reading and so that's a lot uh, obviously and I've I've read uh, I've read in past interviews with you where you talk about uh, the fact that you work slow or at least at some points in your uh, career on certain books you've worked slow uh, I'm curious to know if that's still the case, yeah. and then yeah. what what is your ritual like? Like, what is your writing space like? And then, how do you do it? Is it an everyday thing, or is it um, less than that?
2: Yeah, it's well, we it, it's you know it's been um, it's not necessarily an everyday thing, although I I try to make it so. Uh, but for, I think maybe from those engineering years, I've kind of learned to just go okay. Uh, sometime today i 'm going to try to grab a couple hours now out here now you know i 've got a a sh- a separate little like a, it was a tool shed, so now we fix it up and now that now the joke is i 'm the only tool in the shed but th- <laughs> but that's but I work there and so so I tend to get out there you know eight or nine in the morning and stay as long as i can and and uh, that 's really good, but generally my attitude is kind of like well I know it doesn 't you know I can get a lot done in two hours if i if I concentrate so i 'm um, just trying to find a space in the day like i I'm, I'm commuting back and forth to teach, so those days are kind of a shot but um basically just to kind of you know wake up in the morning and say the one thing I really want to do today is write something uh and then try to find a, a window and and for me the the big thing is um, if I feel kind of happy you know if I feel kind of kind of revved up or kind of uh yeah just happy, it tends to go better just because for me happiness translates into energy and and I can concentrate better and I can Air on the side of hopefulness you know for for a given paragraph so ideally i'd get up and kind of just start doing some stuff around and see when during the day i start feeling kind of kind of happy and then i'd go over and you know mark out three or four hours or something like that but i think now you know at this stage of life i probably am going to try to uh start regulating getting a little more regimented about it because i kind of would like to do some bigger stuff and i would like to go faster than i've gone in the past and i think that's going to require some you know, day after day of six or seven hours blocked out. Which, so far in my life, I haven't quite been able to do that. But now our kids are out of the house and, and they're doing well, and so it might be that this is the the time for that.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I forgot to ask with regard to, um, you know, your breakout and your, uh, you know, your sudden realization or or the, you know, kind of the moment when you gave yourself permission to follow your instincts as opposed to trying to kind of fit your talent into uh, a box that somebody else had built. I'm interested to know. Um, You know, aside from Hemingway, uh, if there were writers, you know, I guess you said, was it Bartholomew and those kinds of guys from the 70s? Were those the writers that you were looking to for inspiration that helped open you up in that direction? Like, who who was it? Was Vonnegut? I know Vonnegut is often Um, a comparison. I'm curious to know if he factored in, too.
2: Yeah. You know what I think? I mean, if I was can I really put it in chronological order and be honest about it, I think it would be that I hadn't read a lot of the wildcats in grad school. So I'd read Bartholomew, and especially Barry Hannah was a huge one. Uh, there are some early stories by um, oh, what's his name? I'll figure it in a minute. Um, Lee K Abbott had written these crazy stories about Blackjack Pershing that I'd come across, um, and I was always, you know, it's almost like I, it, I was I was attracted to those stories, but I didn't quite. Uh, approve of them it'd be like you know like a like an altar boy who sees a really hot goth girl and you know like well, i I can't deny that i have feelings for her but it would be wrong you know so i kind of cordon him off um and then also you know who was great for me was Stuart Dyback. he i read his story hot ice and that was someone where he had obviously a a great grounding in realism and and is a very emotional writer but also there was weird shit happening in his story so I'd, i'd noted all those and said, yes, well, it was another lifetime, and I didn't have to pay homage to Ernest. I would go back to that. And then when I had this break, then I think I went, ah, you guys, you know. Um, and it was more of like, it wasn't really, it was kind of like, I, I sort of knew, um, I didn't know how to do what they did, but I knew what they were doing in my lexicon. In other words, there was a, there was a, like a pile of skills with a tarp over it in my heart that I knew how to get to but I just had never given myself permission. So when I said, and I think what I would have said at that time is, uh, it's okay to be a little wacky, you know, or a little funny or weird. Those were kind of the words I would have used disparagingly probably. Um, And then, so it wasn't really any one writer, but it was this group of people that I had read and kind of processed and kind of loved, but hadn't quite allowed myself to have a membership card. And so the feeling was like, okay, pull off that tarp, and now you can use all these things. You can you can be real manic. You can be funny. You can use brand names. You can set things slightly in the future. And that was just like the um, uh, the whole part of my brain got activated. And, I, and now I can see that it you know it had to do with years of watching TV and a whole bunch of other um, cultural ways of signaling that I just totally knew. I, I absolutely knew them, but I just hadn't allowed them. I didn't think they were literary, so I hadn't allowed them into the game. Hmm. But but airships was a big book for me at that time for sure. That was that was one I was really thinking of.
1: So and then when did you uh, when did it start to break through for you? You know what I'm saying? Because you had stories in the New Yorker, and and I'm curious to know how that happened for you, especially you know at the beginning.
2: Yeah, well, this is you know this is how I think a person could become a reactionary because uh, as an old guy, because for for me now looking back, and I think this is true. It started breaking through the minute I had that realization. Like the next story I wrote after that, um, you know, this this breakthrough we're talking about, all of a sudden got two or three really glowing rejections, including one with the New Yorker, and then it got taken by somebody else. And then every story I sent out suddenly, after five or six years of flatlining, you know, like not even any, not even those little initials on the rejections suddenly I'm getting personalized letters where people are almost saying, well, I don't know why we're not taking this. It's so wonderful, but I, we can't, but you know, so it was just like night and day. And as soon as I turned that corner and, and, you know, sort of let my natural stuff to the table, it started working out. So I think that, uh, very first story that I wrote in that mode was got a nice rejection from the New Yorker. And this editor, David McCormick asked me to send him more. And I think I sent him two or three other things that they also very nicely rejected and then the fourth one they, they took, and um, uh, that was called off one for Mrs. Schwartz. And that was gr- amazing, because they sent a letter saying we might take it. They were changing um, editors at the time, Tina Brown was taking over. And so they, nobody was quite sure what was going to happen, and they said we might take this. Stay tuned. And um, so at that time, I was working for an environmental company. I had to go up to Fort Drum to do some sampling work. So i would just you know this is pre again pre-internet so i would every day at the end of work i'd go to the uh front desk of the microtel where we were staying and kind of just say any messages from the new yorker and (laughs) they look at me like no you know and then one and then one day a message came through we're taking it you know and so that was life-changing you know i got an agent after that this wonderful agent Esther newberg and uh then it was just like um everything was just faster you know suddenly people were reading your work right away instead of seven months later and um yeah, so that was a big deal. It was a big deal.
1: That's a legitimizing factor, you know. And um, I guess, like prior to getting that story yeah. accepted, you were you were just sending them in to the slush pile. Like, was that something you had been doing regularly, or was that yeah. story the first one you sent?
2: No, I sent out. Um, I'd been sending them for years actually, but then I kind of took a break with it. It was so depressing, and then. um when I got on this roll, I started sending them out, and I would kind of do. I, I, I was very methodical about it. I had a, actually a little chart that I had, you know, with like the magazines on one axis and the stories on another. And I would just sort of send. I remember like one of the deep pleasures of those corporate years was I would snark out of work and, and walk uh, with this big handful of envelope envelopes down to this little mailing, you know, like a bunch of mailboxes out in this little berm, you know. But it was outdoors, and and uh, did that ritual of saying, okay, today's a mailing day and I would drop them in and then when they came back i just mark them off, no, 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 no it was sort of a, a way of um, keeping the business, keeping the commerce out of the art a little bit uh, but yeah, I would just send them, you know, those days you just send everything by mail so you it was uh, uh, sometimes a month sometimes seven months, sometimes never and um, but yeah, we was just sending them in cold so the, so the thing about that first story, it was kind of good with it was I literally just sent it to the editor in New Yorker And then, you know, kind of got into the, into the, got under the wire a little bit that way.
1: So, and then, um, just to like shift gears a little bit, like, you know, obviously, um, you had publishing success, the stories were well-received, uh, and then you wound up uh, going on, uh, the, the late show with David Letterman. And I I mean, very few writers have that experience and I'm just curious to know what it was like for you. That must've been surreal. Like I'm a, I'm from Indiana or I spent part of my childhood in Indiana, so, I feel like I have like an affinity for Letterman. I've been a fan since I was a little boy and and I can't even imagine that must have been, uh, you know, nerve wracking. Am I right?
2: Oh yeah. I think I, I mean, I, I I was, um, probably the most nervous you could be and not be dead because I, and I wasn't even (laughs) like, you know, sometimes you go, Oh, I'm so nervous, but this just like my body was going, you better get out of here. You know? But, um, yeah, no, but then it was sort of funny because I luckily I had been doing a bunch of stuff that week. I'd been, like, doing readings and stuff, so then the, the theater itself is like a theater, you know, it's not that big, and so the TV part of it kind of goes out of your mind a little bit, and also they prep you really well. I mean, I kind of knew what the topic was and what, what anecdotes I was going to get to tell and all that, so it was very, very nerve-wracking, but then at the moment, your I think your fight-or-flight thing kind of kicks in, and I, I had a real like a calm down just before I went out, but it was, it was, I, I think if I had realized it, how, how long it would stick around afterwards, I would have been more nervous, but, but actually, you know, I knew I was nervous because I passed Jessica Alba in the hallway and I didn't even, I was just like, get out of the way old man, you know, <laughs> there's no, there was no, uh, uh, no human response there. <laughs> but it, was, it was interesting, you know, to kind of to get, it was interesting to get on the inside of that a little bit and see, oh, you know, I understand now why, um, you know, I think we all have that feeling sometimes that, that TV it, it, it sort of skirts your real life, but it doesn't ever quite engage you like the way literature might. It, it's always kind of superficial, and I think I kind of understood why because they're occupying such valuable real estate there. You know, such such a high level uh, of national attentiveness that they really have to make sure that it's not dull. So if you go back and watch some old TV from the '60s that was less uh, controlled there were some real boring spots in it. Well, this show, they have to kind of keep things moving. So then you see that, you know, it's sort of a function of the, the filters that are on that makes, like, you know, like that's, I was on that show and I was kind of quick and funny and, but I wasn't sad. I didn't have time to be a little depressed or or, or like uh, morose. I mean, that really was, but although to their credit, I, they gave me a great opportunity and I I dropped the ball. We had uh, talked a little bit in the pre-interview about some different things, you know, and, um, Somehow we got on the subject of the fact that I'd worked at a slaughterhouse uh, when I was younger, which I had. And uh, so we got to talking about it. And at some point in the interview, the guy said, well, what did you learn from that slaughterhouse experience? And I said, well, I learned that Terry Eagleton, the philosopher, is correct. that capitalism plunders the sensuality of the body. And so I thought, well, we're not going to get to that point. But then when we were doing the interview, Dave said, you worked in a slaughterhouse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. And then he said, what did you learn from that? And at that point, I, that Eagleton thing had totally gone out of my mind, and I said something stupid or flippant. But that, I could have quoted Terry Eagleton on national TV if I'd had more my wit.
0: <laughs> yeah, can only imagine. You can
1: only, wah, ima- wah. You can't only imagine regrets. That. I've had a few. Right. So um, did that did that appearance? Uh, I mean, it must have done good things for book sales. Like I, I'm curious, like just as like a, a writer who. Knows a lot of other writers who are constantly trying to figure out ways to you know to build readership and whatnot. Like you know, what is the power of a national television appearance on the Letterman Show? Like, could you measure it, or was it something that you felt like well disappointed?
2: Uh, you know, interestingly, at least as far as I could tell, it it helped, but not nearly as much as I thought it would. And I think it has to do with the quality of the performance because I think I. I um, I know, like for example, Sarah Ball is a friend, and she said that it, it helps incredibly. You know, she sells it, but I, I didn't really. I mean, definitely, it spiked some, I guess, on how, by whatever standards you're looking at it. But But um, I kind of felt like there was probably something about my performance that wasn't exactly sending people rushing to the <laughs> store. I, I mean, it was I was happy with it, but somehow it might have been a little weird enough they were like, oh, you know, we're not. So I don't really know. I didn't. I didn't feel like it was the. Um, You know the kind of game changer that you dream of. I I, it didn't certainly didn't catapult me on any bestseller list, but I have a feeling that it might have to do with you know being maybe doing it enough that you were better at it. You know that you were sort of a more. um, You know it's funny. There's a way when because I did that and I did Colbert and I did um, Charlie Rose at one point in a group, and it's funny how part of the skill set is to be a good guest on that show, which they do a lot to prepare you for and to retroactively edit you into a good guest but also you part of your job is to sort of go out there and you know behave like a guest on x show which is in- interesting because it's so anti uh spontaneity and it's anti it's probably not honest at some level because you're truncating yourself and shaping yourself so that you will be a uh, kind of a seamless part of the package you know and i think if you did it enough you'd you know, your vast human intelligence would instruct you in how to do that. But I did it that once, and, I was like, oh, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm a weird guest, you know. Mm-hmm. So I so I have a feeling that maybe if you did it six or seven times, you might start selling some books. But for me, it was sort of – it was good. I did sell some, but it wasn't like the kind of, you know, life-changing blah, blah, blah thing.
1: Well, then, and how did it happen?
2: Which, but, I'm yeah. glad because I like my life before that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, how did, how did, how did there, you was, get You point? know, there was a picture um, years before uh, – because there was actually about 12 years between the first book and that. Uh, you know, this was uh, in connection with this book of essays that I had come out. But somewhere in there, there was a picture that someone sent me of, of Letterman coming out of uh, jury duty, and he was holding my second book of stories. So I think that I was kind of on their radar a little bit, but then, and I think there were also uh, some of the, um, you know, the staff were had read my stuff and were trying to get me on. But But to get a fiction writer on, you know, on the occasion of he has a book out that's not you know a book of stories and but this book of essays had a little bit more of a, sort of a political hook to it, and it was sort of easier to talk about so I think that was just like I, my sense was he and his people had sort of wanted to get me on maybe theoretically among with you know obviously millions of other people but that they wanted to get on but this opportunity presented where uh you know the the book seemed to to facilitate the appearance a little bit. So I just got a call. I'd gotten a call one other time that they were they had an emergency. They needed to fill-in. Could I get in there that night? And I couldn't. Thank God, because that would have been really hard. But then this was just sort of uh, part of a tour, and there was like a little back and forth. We think we can book this. Do you want to do it? Yeah. And then it happened. So I don't. it's sort of mysterious, really, but I think it has to do with actually advocacy from within, you know, sure. people on the staff who, um, yeah. And I'm sure that's sort of a trade-off, like, okay, well, we got Jessica Alba. <laughs> well, okay, so we can <laughs> slum a little bit. And, and, and,
1: and yeah, we can. We can counter. Cause cause
2: we can she, counterweight uh, somebody told me once. That's right. They'll still be enthralled by her. And it, but somebody told me that you know that um, somebody who'd been on that show said, you know, you go out there as a writer, you're gonna, everyone's going to be bummed. Like, oh shit, we got a writer. You know, we thought we maybe get three stars, but we got a writer. And uh, so she said, you're, you're walking pretty thin ice anyway, so you have to kind of get a couple good hits in early and then just hope you don't, you know, alienate them completely. So fraught with peril.
1: Well, Well, it's, it's also got to, had to have been exciting. Um, and you know, not to, I don't he want
2: was him, very exciting. He's a, he's a really nice guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I met him when I was a kid, uh, at the Indianapolis 500. I was, I was like 12 years old and, uh, oh, I, went, well. I went up to, I'll never forget huh. it. I went up to him and asked for my, uh, asked for his autograph and, he was very nice, and but he, you know, he made fun of me in front of a group of people. Yeah. He asked me how to spell my name, which I did, <laughs> and as soon, as soon as I did, I realized that he was, you know, he was joking, and uh, was, you know, it was really funny. But right, um, I want to, you know, I don't want to embarrass. Well, you, but
2: you know, it's funny because that, that in our generation, in my generation, he that, he was such a huge force in comedy. You know, there was, there was a that was a game changing thing when that show came on, and uh, it's kind of. Uh, I think you could if you looked at the comedy of the 70s and the 80s that that show was a real uh huge thing so it was it was an honor to be on there and kind of, and terrifying also as well.
1: Yeah, no, I was reading about I mean the thing about it is that I was I was a young boy when I started watching Letterman when he was on uh late night, you know, initially back in the 80s and uh you know, I obviously wasn't coming at it deconstructing it and I didn't have like a deep understanding of what he was doing nor did I have like a deep understanding of of comedy history or television history, but uh, you know, in retrospect, and then right. having the the opportunity to read uh you know people who are smarter than I am about this kind of stuff, you realize that you know he was he like, the whole arch attitude and that kind of um, taking the piss out of the medium itself was totally him, you know, and people didn 't quite do that right. before he came right. along you know exactly. where he was making fun of his own yeah. show you know while he was doing the show you know? <laughs> like, right. Um, so
2: yeah, and I think that was actually you know along with Steve Martin there, there was there was a there was a movement there where it's actually very postmodern where you say this medium is wearing out. How can we rejuvenate it? We can trash it, you know, and then suddenly the whole thing becomes becomes new again. So that's very, it's something I think as a fiction writer I, I've you know used that that principle a lot. Where if you're in a story and it's not working you gotta kind of trash it. You know, in other words, you have to say, What about you, dear story, is fucking me up and then if you ask yourself that question, often an answer will appear that is sort of subversive and it uh, doesn't it doesn't denounce what you've done already, but it kind of teases out the bullshit and it and uses that as fuel for the next movement kind of
1: Sure. Sure. So uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but I want to ask you about uh, a couple of other uh, victories of yours, because I think they're of, uh, of interest to my listenership. And I think that like in the world of being a writer, um, they're pretty high achievements. And uh, I guess the main one is is winning a MacArthur grant. Uh, you got one and you also have gotten to Guggenheim. Uh, but like, you know, the MacArthur grant holds a certain uh, position uh, in, the, in the minds of writers, I think, in the minds of artistic people. And you know what I what I want to ask is what happens when you win one like do you just get a call like like is there a ceremony <laughs> you know like how did how did you find out that you won No one no car? no
2: the op- you just um I was actually uh and, and by the way you can talk about the victories but don't talk about the humiliating defeats those are the ones I don't you know the, the victories are cool <laughs> um no I was uh I, I was working for GQ. I, I was doing a piece uh, on the Mexican border so the 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 shtick was I was going to drive the whole Mexican border from Brownsville, Texas, all the way to San Diego. So in the process, I got a little opportunity to go spend a night with those min- Minutemen guys who like police the border. So I had this really wonderful, intense two days with them. It was just like you, you know, what you dream of when you're a young writer, like you're out in the mud with these guys, and you're fighting with them, but you're also kind of bonding with them, and all these great bits of stuff that you know you can use in the piece, and... So at the end of that, I hadn't slept in about a day and a half, so to reward myself, I drove up to Marfa, which is not too far away, and it's kind of a artistic community, and I got this kind of nice little hotel room, and um, and I just had an email from my wife saying, like, basically, honey, call me, call me, call me, call me, and then behind that was an email from somebody at the MacArthur Foundation saying, please be in touch with us at your earliest convenience. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, it's like they want a letter of recommendation. or But then that in combination with my wife's letter, my email made me think, oh, that's kind of weird. But it was 3 in the morning, and so I couldn't do anything about it. So I just went to bed. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking, hmm, I wonder, I just wonder. Uh, and that's a really interesting way to spend an evening because, you you know, I'm having dreams of nuns saying, well, who do you think you are, mister, you know, <laughs> Mr. Smarty Pants? Uh you know, cause I so then yeah, so then I woke up and and um, you know, call the guy and and they're very nice there. They did, they're incredible. They just say, here's what you, here's the deal. Uh, we're gonna announce it later today, and congratulations. You won't be hearing from us much, never actually. So you get the money and you get no strings attached, and uh, they're incredibly supportive. And then once years later, I went on a uh, a retreat where they where some MacArthur people get together, and it was one of the most profound weekends I've ever, I've ever spent. So it was just an incredibly good, all good, no downside, nothing but happiness, you know?
1: It's good to be a genius, right?
2: <laughs> well, good to be mistaken for one. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Um, uh, so the last thing and I, I wanna...
2: can, I can say that cause it's over and I spent the money.
1: <laughs> right. It's all done now. Um, so last yeah. thing I want to ask you about, you mentioned that the trip, uh, in Mexico and the piece for GQ and, you know, you've been doing um, some journalism work, uh, you know, where you're out in the field and, uh, you're having adventures. There was a piece in particular that I read and I believe it was in GQ. Uh, and I read it with great fascination cause I sort of shared a similar fascination with you. And that was the one where you went over to, uh, track down the Buddha boy.
2: Oh Yeah. 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 That was incredible. That was just uh, that was an idea that they came up with. I hadn't even heard of them. And then um, you know this little boy who was fifteen or sixteen and supposedly hadn't had any food in six months, and he was sitting under this tree. So the story just became, you know, find him uh, and hang out there and see what the how are pulling this trick off, you know. And then you kind of see, well, they're not. There's nothing. It's you know the poorest part of Nepal and. Uh, everybody there is kind of mortified by it. His family in the town doesn't really want it to be going on. And uh, so it ended up being just a really profound, uh, I mean, the heart of the story is that I went out and spent the night, this one long night uh, trying to stay awake with him. Not, not I mean, he's not near me, but he's maybe 100 yards away in the dark. And uh, so it was really great. It was one of those really again, when you're young, you, you dream that you'll have a life where your writing life and your spiritual life and your intellectual life and your active life all come together, and that was a perfect example of, the, of it, that happening, you know, where um, it was a challenging writing assignment, partly because it was a challenging spiritual moment, partly because it was physically hard, and uh, it was just a great, you know, kind of crazy um, confluence of, of things.
1: Do you have any idea where that kid is now? Because I mean, he he was, I mean, he was literally sitting there. His hair grew out like down to you know over his face. I mean,
2: it's like the most yeah.
1: bizarre thing ever. But do you have any yeah. idea whatever uh, became um, of him?
2: He, um, you can track him. I mean, he he uh, after that, not long after that, he came out of there because there was too many people, and he went somewhere else. And then they drove him out of there. And then for a while, he was living. His followers had built an underground bunker, and he was down there. And then for a while on the internet you could see he'd he would come out and he would give little teachings and stuff so i'm not sure exactly where he is now um but i'm not sure you know it's a funny thing because i i don't know how uh, i i heard at some point that the um you know he's it was hard for him because people are really harassing him not not in a, an aggressive way but they're tourists you know and and some and some people are actually i guess sort of uh you know, some kids will, will taunt him. And you know, so I think it's a rough kind of deal, but I don't know exactly where he is, but he's, um, he should be about 20, 21 by now, I think. And it seems like, you know, it's not, it's certainly not the case that he went, ha ha, idiots, Like pulled one on. I mean, he's still following the spiritual path and still, um, as far as I know, trying to basically just get left alone so he can do whatever it is he's trying to accomplish. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, is there any difference in your approach to the journalism work Uh, then there, I mean, you know, there's, there's the obvious things, obviously, but when we talked earlier about your approach to fiction and your, um, you know, giving yourself permission to, uh, break out of the realism, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff, like, you know, obviously when you're doing journalism, you're bound, uh, to the truth in a more direct way, but are there things that you need to do structurally to do that work or does it feel significantly different than the kind of writing or the approach to writing that you take when you're working on fiction
2: well you know the one big difference is that uh, you mentioned earlier that I that I was slow and I am in fiction and the reason is because I in what I've done so far anyway I do a lot of um you know like plot invention like, I don't really know what's gonna happen I don't have a whole lot of forethought about what the story is but I'm kinda looking for the optimal path through this thing that I don't know what it is you know so that for me means a lot of writing and rewriting and throwing stuff away and starting over and and um Sometimes, or sometimes it means getting stuck at a certain point and hitting that and hitting and hitting it and finally breaking through. So that's frustrating, you know, as you get older, especially because I feel like I have a lot I want to say, but this problematic kind of plotting thing means that I really can only do two or three stories a year. So one of the reliefs of the nonfiction was to say, well, the plot's already there. I mean, you went for 10 days and these things happened. So it's not really a question of what happened. But then it's just a matter of finding, as you said, structural ways to mm, present them in a way that creates drama, say. So um, that's a whole different set of problems. And it means that if you have a, like, I'm, I'm naturally a pretty good writer. I can write quickly, and I can write uh, at a certain level of charm pretty quickly. So that means that then the, the whole thing becomes structural. Uh, you know, which instance do I want to highlight? How do I want to tell them? what can I cut from this one that will allow me to bring in this other thing. So it's a nice change of problems. It's still problematic. It's still hard. Uh, and then the other thing it does is it kind of, you know, for whatever reason, my fiction tends to be, uh, I would say, pretty highly stylized and, you know, a certain of the, I would say, most of my stories to really get them, you have to have a pretty good grounding in the short story. You have to Red Hannah and Red Bartholomew and Red Hemingway maybe in and Carver and um, so somebody coming in off the street and picking up, one of my books of stories kind of goes, yeah, nice cover. You know, it's not necessarily uh, accessible. But with the the nonfiction, something in me clicked. Like, well, part of my job is to be accessible and to write to the general reader and to write to anybody who can read. Just, you know, let me... Um, it, it feels to me a little more like direct address. Like I'm standing toe-to-toe with somebody and going, hey, you know what? I went to Nepal last week and here's what happened. And that, that was something... There's something really liberating about that. It's got me kind of... Uh, thinking ahead to the next thing, you know. I mean, in some ways, the, the whole this whole time I've been writing that it, my mantra has been, y- "You're doing this for the next book." It, it's sort of a way of easing any kind of writer's block stuff, where you say, "Well, whatever flaws this story has, you know, I'm doing my best, but I know it's not perfect, it's not that great." Okay, well, you can con- continue working on it because you're priming for the next thing. So it's kind of a maybe a, you know a Catholic way of getting out from under the incredible pressure of creation. So you're just like, oh, yeah, this is sucky, but the next one, that's going to be the one. <laughs> so in a way, this um, these nonfiction pieces were a great way of saying, well, whatever is going on in fiction, if I'm going to go bigger, longer, I might have to bring some other skills to it. And the nonfiction was a way of kind of kicking a few hornet's nests and seeing what, what else do I have? So, for example, I actually really love the parts of those pieces where I got to write about the physical world, you know, without any absurdism, just like, with, here's what the marketplace looks like, here's what, you know, this store looks like. Um, and also, that, again, that, that, that idea that it's actually okay to turn to your reader and assume some common intelligence and interest and just du- directly address her in a way that maybe isn't quite, it's not all that fancy pants, it's not all that intellectual, but it's kind of just it's sort of a sort of a comradely, you know, uh, discussion. And so anyway, I don't know, but yeah, you know, <laughs> blah, blah. Uh,
1: and so what's next for you? Like, are you working on something right now? Do you have uh, a sense of, of, you know, what you're going to publish next?
2: Yeah. Well, I just finished a book of stories called the 10th of December that's going to come out in uh, January of 2013. So th- this summer I've kind of just been finishing up. There was one long piece that I finished kind of later than the others. And, uh, you know, just kind of doing the edits and stuff that, that are required there. And then now, actually, for the first time in probably 15 years, I don't really have anything going on. I, I, I All the other books I've sort of had, um, you know, carry over. I'd start a story thinking it was going to go in this book, but it actually goes in the next one. So really, for the first time in 15 years, I'd have literally an empty desk. So I'm kind of just uh, uh, waiting. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of a nice nice thing, you know, just to say, I don't you know, actually, okay, so I had a pretty good run of it. Uh, it's been fun. What's the next thing? And actually make a deliberate decision to do something. I, I don't know what it, what it is. It Maybe start a band. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll be eagerly awaiting uh, You know, to see what it is. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you talking to me. It's been such a thrill. And uh, I wish you all the best going forward.
2: Well, it was really fun for me too, Brad. Thanks for all your great questions.
1: Okay, guys, there you have it. That is George Saunders. You can find him on the web on Facebook. And while you're at it, go get some of his books, read something, Civil War Land and Bad Decline, Pastoralia, The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp, The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil, In Persuasion Nation, The Braindead Megaphone, any one of those. And please keep an eye out for 10th of December, his new story collection due out from Random House in January 2013. This show has a website, it's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. if you want to follow my weird tweets. This show has a Facebook presence, too. And if you want to email me, tell me something, write me a letter, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, if you'd like to show your support for the program and throw a few dollars into the hat, here's a great way to do that. Join the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, The NervousBreakdown.com is my online literary community and little culture magazine slash blog. We do a monthly book club for only $9.99 a month, less than the cost of a book, less than the cost of a movie ticket, less than the cost in some places of a cocktail you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days it's a terrific deal all titles are handpicked by myself and jonathan evison it's a great uh way to help the cause to help the program to sign up for the book club just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar you can pay via paypal or with any major credit card okay uh that's all for now 100 episodes done in the can is that the right way of saying it the episodes are in the can They're in the can. Please remember that Edmund Wilson once punched Mary McCarthy in the face and that Tolstoy once called Hamlet, quote, a coarse, immoral, mean, and senseless work. Uh, It's good to be with you guys. I'll be back again soon. Thanks, as always, for listening. 100 episodes. Uh, Are you getting tired of me at this point? 100 episodes? Has anyone actually listened to all 100 episodes? There has to be at least one of you out there. Uh, Whoever you are, wherever you are, I want you to know something. You need help, you're sick, and I love you.